Dr. Deepak Srivastava is a renowned pediatric cardiologist and president of Gladstone Institutes. At UC San Francisco, Dr. Srivastava is a professor in the departments of pediatrics and biochemistry and biophysics. Today, he discusses some of the most innovative approaches to COVID-19 testing, treatment, and prevention. Let's listen in. Okay, Deepak, welcome. Um, so let me let me just start by by telling you how grateful we are to have uh, Dr. Deepak Srivastava uh, with us today. As you may know, um, Deepak, this is part of a series we've been having with business leaders around the country, and, and, and for all of our participants, probably 100, 150 uh, business leaders around the country. Let me just tell you, Dr. Srivastava holds just a few titles. This is not a guy who's accomplished much in his life. He's the president of the Gladstone Institute. Um, he's the younger family professor there. He's a senior investigator at the Gladstone Institute of Cardiovascular Disease. He's the, re- the director of the Rodenberry Stem Cell Center. And at UC San Francisco, he's a professor in the Department of Pediatrics and Biochemistry and Biophysics, and is the Wilma and Adeline Parag Distinguished Professor in Pediatric Developmental Cardiology. I don't know how you find any time to talk with us, but, but we welcome him here today to speak with us um, really about um, novel approaches to COVID-19 diagnostics, treatment of vaccines. So with that, if you would take a few minutes and give us your thoughts, we'll, we'll then shift to Q&A. Great. Uh, thank you so much. It's been uh, great to be on these uh, calls the last couple of weeks. Uh, learned a lot from uh, all of you, and I hope I can share a little bit of uh, insight for you here about the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm uh, uh, calling in from here in San Francisco, uh, where you can see my my background. Uh, not quite as lovely as yours, Ron, but uh, uh, what I thought I'd do is uh, uh, tell you a bit about uh, what the uh, where the perspective from which I can share with you information uh, as the leader at the Gladstone Institute, which, which for those of you who may be new to it, it's a, a nonprofit biomedical research institute in San Francisco, uh, focused on a few key diseases of uh, humankind, uh, including heart disease, brain diseases, and uh, virology, which is the relevant uh, component here today. And so uh, our uh, virologist uh, at the, the Gladstone had been instrumental in uh, the movement from uh, HIV in particular, going from a, a uniformly lethal disease to a chronic disease now. And so they've all ported very quickly over to studying this new virus and trying to make an impact uh, uh, for the whole world at this point. And so I think the uh, from hearing the calls uh, you know, recently, I think it's become clear to all of you that the real key issues in order for our world to get back uh, to any semblance of normality uh, and to save the lives that need to be saved are to have better diagnostics. And we talked a bit about that yesterday, it came up and I'll share more detail there. Have new treatments uh, for which there aren't any right now. And then ultimately prevention, because this is not a virus likely that is just gonna come and go like SARS or MERS, but it's probably here with us for a while. And so in thinking about the longer term, uh, vaccines and prevention uh, are the key. And so uh, I'll just say maybe say a little bit about each one of those, and then we can open up to uh, questions that I can tell you more, uh, answer those for you. And so let's talk about uh, uh, testing first. So this 
came up yesterday and I think many people indicated that what we really need are tests that can be done at a restaurant, at an airport, at a border, uh, in schools, if people are gonna go back to schools. And what that means is that in principle, it needs to get away from a laboratory-based effort, which right now, all the tests are, you go to uh, some setting, a designated user does a nasal swab, the test has to go to a laboratory machine that has some complex uh, technology in it, and then you get a result a few days later. That's really not good enough. You have to be able to test in real time and very quickly isolate those individuals and then track uh, uh, people who have been exposed. And so, uh, and it needs to be inexpensive so it can be global and worldwide. And so all of the tests that are out there right now require amplification of the viral uh, genome. And that is involves a test called polymerase chain reaction or PCR. You hear about it often in forensic cases. That's how we amplify and uh, get skin or hair from a crime scene and, and uh, study those. And so that's the key platform for all the current tests and therefore it requires a laboratory. And so I can share with you a, a, a very novel approach that uh, one of our investigators at Gladstone developed actually over the last year and a half for HIV with the goal of being able to test people remotely, say in a village in Africa, where there wouldn't be a laboratory from hundreds of miles within that range. And that had been the motivation uh, and that had, they developed a prototype and have now quickly ported that to this new coronavirus that meets, I think, a lot of the requirements that we need. And the key there is that they used a technology called uh, CRISPR, which many of you may have heard of us, was developed for genome editing by Jennifer Doudna, who's uh, one of our investigators uh, at Berkeley and at Gladstone. And, uh, and then coupled that with a, a technology where the camera on your smartphone, whether it's Android or iPhone, can be used as a microscope essentially and detect a fluorescent output uh, from the uh, test that makes it so sensitive that you'd actually don't need to amplify the viral uh, uh, genome. And anybody who has a phone, smartphone, can use that to test, tell if they're positive or negative. So that gets it away from a laboratory and it puts it in the hands directly of users that can be used like a home kit, uh, like a pregnancy test, and, and, it's, and it can be made cheaply. And so that's the kind of thing that we think we need to finally uh, be able to uh, open up uh, the economy. So, so, uh, so that's, uh, we can talk more about that, but that is a technology that uh, we're trying to compress now uh, the development of that because you know normally that would be another 18 months to get to a product that can be distributed. And we've got a number of people helping us trying to compress that to a four to five month period. So by September, when people are thinking about going back to school and uh, other aspects um, that uh, will have that. And the beauty of it, doing it with the phone where the result is stored is that you can easily develop it with an app that would in real time aggregate global data, if this were a global platform, global data with geolocation information. Uh, so it will help in tracking and potentially with fever and symptoms and other outcomes data. So from an epidemiologic standpoint, you can imagine you could quickly have millions, hundreds of millions of data points and with good machine learning algorithms actually learn a lot from uh, about patterns. So, so that is uh, 
uh, one of one of the aspects. Um, and uh, we'll come back. I see some questions coming in, and we'll come back to that in a moment. And then, uh, so you can diagnose. You need to diagnose in some way. That I shared with you one potential way. Uh, treatment. So the, you've heard a lot about hydroxychloroquine uh, and maybe remdesivir, which is the new Gilead drug uh, that looks like it may be promising. Both of those work by preventing the virus from actually entering the cell. So the virus has to bind to a receptor on our cell surface, gain entry, and then the virus basically, which is just a bag of uh, nucleic acids, it doesn't have any machinery in it. The virus is, has one purpose in life, and that is to make more of itself. That's it. And it has no machinery to, machinery to do that. So essentially it hijacks all our proteins in our cell and uses our proteins and machinery to make more copies of itself, kills our cell, and then you know goes and infects the next cell. So uh, the strategies for treatments are to prevent entry, uh, or to figure out how it's hijacking our cells and prevent that. And so um, I think a lot of people now are doing much more directed discovery rather than in addition to using previously existing drugs like hydroxychloroquine or remdesivir. Um, one of our investigators in the HIV world had, was famous for a number of things, but in particular for developing an assay that allows to screen for drugs for HIV entry or any viral entry and uh, some of the drugs out there are based on that. Um, and so we quickly adapted that to entry of this coronavirus and are now screening a library of about 12,000 drugs that are already approved by the FDA. So they've already gone through safety testing, toxicity. Uh, and the beauty of that approach is if you find a hit, you can directly take that drug to a, what we call a phase two clinical trial uh, looking for efficacy without having to worry about safety issues. Um, and so that's happening. And uh, you'll see a major report uh, next week come out uh, that uh, I think will be uh, have a, get a lot of attention. I'll give you a little preview of that. And that is um, we have very quickly identified all the different proteins that this virus hijacks in our cells. So those Proteins are what forms now as the target for finding new drugs. So if I, the virus protein interacts with one of ours, uh, if you disrupt that interaction, then you keep it from taking over our cells. So we first identified all those proteins that interact, and now we've uh, started to identify drugs that are breaking that up. And you'll probably Monday or Tuesday next week, uh, you'll see in the national press uh, some uh, stories uh, about that. And then the final uh, thing I'll say is, uh, is for vaccine development. So ultimately, it looks like this is going to be a virus that's more like the flu in that uh, it's going to be here with us. And uh, it, it's clear now that this is spread among the population. Some recent reports are suggesting that uh, if you test asymptomatic people walking around, uh, that have no symptoms and test a whole bunch of people. And this was done uh, in pregnant women, actually, who are coming in for delivery, uh, just reported this week. 15 to 20% of those have, are infected. No symptoms. They'll never have symptoms. Uh, similar numbers were reported from the ship, the Navy, the aircraft carrier that you heard about a few weeks ago when testing everybody on that ship. 
about a, a similar number had no symptoms, never will, uh, and uh, are uh, and and those people are spreading. They're still shedding, um, and so we're going to need a vaccine. And uh, traditional development is going on for uh, what you're familiar with, and that takes about 18 months, as you've heard uh, Tony Fauci say and others. Uh, there's a company called Moderna that was in the news this week that uh, the, our, our government is supporting with almost $500 million for a brand new way to make a vaccine. And that approach is very clever. It takes um, a technology where you just take the RNA strand of a virus. So this is an RNA virus that Corona viruses and in just introduce that uh, into the body. The body mounts an immune response to that. Uh, and uh, that is your vaccine. The, the benefit there is that development time is a lot shorter. And so that's going into a trial now. So that's a really neat, neat approach. Um, and then uh, the, uh, the other approach that uh, we're taking is all, was also previously developed for HIV. And that is to make a defective virus particle. So you, you keep the ability of the virus to make more of itself, but you delete out parts of the genome of the virus uh, that are making it uh, cause pathology and disease in us. And then introduce that into people actually as a vaccine. Uh, we make lots of copies of those, but the virus can't do anything. And that essentially uh, protects uh, the, the body. So, so there are very clever new approaches to vaccine that are unconventional uh, that hopefully will, uh, will speed up. Uh, before we go to questions, um, I see a question that's very relevant to my comments. I'm just going to comment on that. And that is about the Abbott test, uh, which uh, was in the news a lot also recently, which is wonderful in that they were able to compress the time of the test to uh, around uh, five to 15 minutes if you're uh, uh, to get most positives, uh, if uh, to really be certain it's negative a little bit longer. But the key is uh, to a short time frame for testing, and that's wonderful. And they have a base of installation all over the country where there are instruments, so it's good to ramp up. Uh, and that's a great development, but it still requires uh, amplification of the uh, material, and so it requires a more sophisticated machine. Even though there is an installed base for that, it requires uh, more of a, a, a system where it has to be, it, it can't be, a, it, it's not designed to be an in-home kit, but it's a very important development that, that's going to allow us to ramp up testing. We need to be able to ramp up with the technology we have now uh, to scale, to which we haven't been able to do. Uh, so that is a, uh, a key uh, key aspect. So maybe I'll, maybe I'll stop there and uh, take some questions. Deepak, I believe you're on our message board. Yeah, I, I sense you've been following them. So there's a bunch of questions about the Abbott device and mm -hmm. more generally, you know, the, the Abbott five minute test, um, how long to get to testing at scale, how many tests a day at scale. With all this progress, why is the number of tests per day stuck at 150? I'll let you take those as a broad group and then we'll go to Sure. Back. Yeah, so uh, I think the last comment this came in is uh, even if you develop a test, you've got to, uh, that meets all the requirements that we talked about, you've got to be able to scale that. Uh, and scaling production is uh, a really key because ultimately, if there's, even if there's a great test and you want to test people repeatedly, you need hundreds of millions of these. And you know, somebody mentioned on here that we're stuck at 150,000 
a, a day. And so part of that is that uh, if you have to get a, a sophisticated user to do a nasal swab uh, and, uh, and then, uh, and that person's gotta be gowned up uh, and with PPE to be able to, it just limits throughput. So there was an important development this last week where a company announced that they were able to make this PCR-based test work with spit and with saliva rather than a nasal swab. And the, the importance there is that that would then allow somebody to, in their home, spit into a cup, send that, uh, and then get back a test. So that's better than what we're doing now because uh, it doesn't require somebody going to a spot even if it's a drive-through where, where somebody can do the swab. Uh, so that should expand the number if we have the available number of kits. Uh, but it still is a delay in that you have to send something and get it back. Uh, so the Abbott test, for example, could then be done with somebody who spits in a cup, sends it, uh, they do it, and then send the result back. Uh, and so that, I think those are all important steps and we should scale those. But ultimately we need a test uh, that people can do themselves. And when do we get to a million tests a day? I mean, when does this happen? And if this is a gating item, and I think there's a bunch of questions along that line that we can go over some other things. Uh, yeah, so um, the million tests a day, uh, if we're able to produce them, so manufacturing is one thing, uh, but you can think about ways where we invoke the Defense Production Act, you know, find a way to produce at scale. Um, it's still, I think a, a rate limiting step would be is if each, each person had to go to some healthcare provider to actually do the test, um, that's gonna, that makes it hard to scale just on a simple numbers game. And that's why I think it's so important that we ultimately get to a home kit. That won't happen right away. And I know from our conversations with the FDA, uh, the regulatory aspect of that has a much higher hurdle. So. Uh, I think uh, the best we could do in, in between would be tests at Walgreens, um, CVS, schools, like I said earlier, at any stations where you have uh, some uh, control over the user interface uh, will likely be the first step. But if the FDA gets confidence that that user interface is so easy that you can get a reliable result with a, a home test like a pregnancy test, uh, then it'll get, it'll get there. And we're having some questions. Can you not use something like 23andMe, which already has an installed base? Uh, yeah, I think uh, something like that for collection uh, could be true. The key is uh, if you could, you want people to be able to use it themselves. So uh, saliva doesn't have as high concentration of the virus as a nasal swab from deep back in the, in the throat, in the nose. Um, and so getting the sensitivity down uh, without having to amplify would be valuable. Uh, and so I think there are a few technological leaps that have to occur for that to, to happen. My God, we're getting so many questions. You want to take a look at the board and decide what you want to take first? Yeah, let's see here. Sure. Yeah, it's great that we're getting so many. Um, yeah. They love you. So there, there's, an, there's an important question, um, I think, um, about uh, the testing, while we're on testing, of the virus versus antibodies. So uh, we should, that's probably worth commenting on. Uh, the vi virus test we've been talking about so far tell you if you're currently infected and shedding virus. The antibody test would tell you if you've ever been infected before and your immune response 
has responded and now uh, you have antibodies, which in theory for most viruses would protect you from another infection, although that's a bit in question at the moment. Uh, but it's a really important uh, question because if in fact it protects you, then you can imagine, and you've heard in the news, I'm sure about this, that we test people who have antibodies, maybe they're the first people that go back to work because they're not gonna spread. Um, and so there's a lot of effort right now trying to develop serology tests to look for people who've been exposed. Uh, right now, they've just, they're just now rolling out and uh, there's a lot of question about uh, how accurate they'll be. And uh, it's a, it seems a little shaky right now, but there's a lot of development there that's really important that's happening uh, to see if, if we could do that. So uh, the jury's still out of how good that test will be, but it's a really Im important step. So there's a question about the um, rates of uh, infection. Yes. Um, and, and maybe with that, uh, it's not in the question, but I know a lot of people think about why is there such a vast difference in not just rates of infection, but mortality country to country. And I think uh, there are two potential, there are a couple of potential reasons for let's say the fatality rates initially. They range from anywhere from 12 to 13% in Italy, uh, UK, Spain, uh, to uh, a low of 0.8% in South Korea. And the United States is hovering around four or 5%. China's numbers were around uh, around the same, maybe three to 4%. Um, and uh, it, it's partly related to denominators of how many people are tested. And so the more people you test who are, who are or have fewer symptoms, uh, the lower your fatality rate because you have more people who you know are infected. And we know in each of these countries there are a lot more people infected uh, than we know. Um, but among those that are sick enough to get tested, let's say, at least in the United States, our fatality rates are still around four to five percent. Um, if the if the medical system gets overwhelmed, as you've heard, which is part of the reason to flatten the curve, uh, then the mortality rates seem to go up because we're just not as good at caring for folks when your the system is overwhelmed. And, and that clearly is part of the, the equation in, in Italy. There remains uh, uh, to be a question of are certain ethnicities genetically predisposed to uh, a higher fatality rate, uh, which is something that people are thinking about but the, and is a possibility. We certainly know that within a population, um, uh, depending on your immune system, uh, people can be more or less susceptible. Uh, and in fact, the, going back to the pregnant women study I mentioned earlier, uh, we had been advising pregnant women that they're at high risk because that's true for other viruses. Uh, but in fact, uh, the data from these, uh, the number of people who are asymptomatic is actually 90% in these women. So it may be higher than the, in, than in the population. They may actually be protected maybe based on their immune system. Test pos positivity rate, just been reading about. <clears throat> they did a piece, we're at 20%. It's not decreasing with additional testing. Is it unreasonable to anticipate that up to 20% of our population is already infected? Yes. Yeah, that's a good point. So even now that we've even we've tested, uh, what, six, seven, or several, a few million uh, now in the United States and have six to 700,000 positives, uh, our overall rate of positivity is like the, is uh, around 20%. But remember, at least in the United States, we've set pretty strict criteria for testing. 
Uh, you have to have a fever. You have to have certain symptoms. Uh, otherwise, you're not getting tested. And, and so uh, the positivity rate is held at about that level, but that's among the people who have significant nice. symptoms. Um, there was a serology test released today from Santa Clara County where they tested a few hundred people for antibodies. And in that study, it looks like they're about uh, around somewhere around 3% of the population had antibodies. And, and, but we have a pretty low rate in Cal this Bay Area. We acted early, as you know, so we limited it very early. If, you did it, if we don't know yet, but if you do the same thing in New York, I'm sure it's gonna be much higher. But even 3% is a lot higher uh, than uh, what we know from testing, virus testing. And so certainly the fatality rate is gonna be a lot lower when you consider all the people exposed including those that uh, never develop symptoms, <clears throat> which is probably around 20% um, of the population uh, uh, you know, may never develop symptoms and be infected. I know Bob Zeidman has been, was our first questioner and he's brought a number of the ones to the table. Bob, what would you like to ask? Hi, Ron, thanks for uh, this. And uh, Dr. Srivastava, thanks for uh, being on, not only on this call, but on all the calls. My question is, we've had some speakers talk about how countries like uh, Taiwan, Singapore, South Korea have low, flattened the curve and they're getting people back to work. We had Dr. Hazeltine, I think you were in on this call maybe, he said that China has virtually stopped the spread of the virus. But um, you know, we're hearing that we need testing in order to do this, in fact, advanced testing. So do these countries have testing that they're not sharing with us or um, have they sent the people back to work without, without this testing? Yeah, no, it's a great question is, what can we learn from other countries that managed to, even when they had early outbreaks, to uh, get to a different spot than we did? It, it didn't have to be that we have the, the number one number of deaths in the world. It didn't have to be that way. And what did these other countries do? So they, uh, they are using the same testing platform that we described earlier. And in fact, uh, in the early days of the testing, those tests had a, a pretty high false negative rate. And that's why our CDC initially said, okay, let's not use that. Let's develop a better test. Um, and then they released that. And in the early stages that had a flaw. Uh, and so it was actually turned out to be worse. Uh, and uh, so that's how we got behind in part on testing. But the test they used, despite a high, relatively high false negative rate, what they were able to do that we haven't fully mobilized yet in this country to do is to test uh, in very broad populations, but not to stop there. Once somebody tests positive, you have to have a very straightforward algorithm. And that is to isolate that individual. And some countries would take that person and isolate them from their home even. So they'd set up places where if you tested positive, you go to this place with other people who are positive and you wait there to see how it develops. Uh, so that you're not, your family doesn't become then infected and, and then also spread. And then you track carefully. You have to track all the exposures and, and then quarantine those people in place for 14 days. Uh, and if you do all three of those things, test, isolate, and track, uh, then you start to limit the spread. And the key, it's a, it's a simple mathematical formula. And that is for every person who's infected, if they infect on average, fewer than one person, 
eventually it dies out. If they're infecting on average more than one person, it continues. And that's, you'll often see if, you re, if you're reading about these things, it's referred to as an R naught, R with a little zero underneath it as a subscript. And so the R naught for this uh, coronavirus initially seemed to be somewhere around three or four, every person who's infected would infect three or four other people. And it looks like by our efforts in America, at least by sheltering in place, we've reduced that to somewhere that hovers around one, uh, sometimes above one, sometimes below one, but it's right around that measure. Uh, and if we really need to want to get it below, we need to do a better job of isolating and tracking, which we're really not doing right now. Right now, if you go to the hospital and you test positive, but you don't need oxygen, you get told to go home and, uh, you know, shelter in place with your family. And, uh, and that's comfortable, but you're gonna continue to spread that. So that's what, uh, you know, South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, those are the things they did. And once you get, and we're probably too late for that because we have a too high a burden of infection in the population to really make that feasible. But once we get down by our current actions to a level uh, that is manageable in number to test, isolate and track, uh, that's what we'll need to do, but we have to be shelter in place to get on the other side of the curve to get to that manageable number. We kind of went up too far before we were able to test, um, and and that's why we're in the situation we're doing. We are. When do you imagine we're going to see um, modalities that allow treatment that reduce the the morbidity of of, of COVID nineteen and the uh, intensity? I mean, there's been a lot so, of so, yeah. So that's that's the area where we just have to be very aggressive about uh, the research that we and other institutions are doing. There's a lot of attention right now, appropriately, on relief measures, uh, and that that's needed. But we have to be careful that we are also investing enough resources to do the discovery that would result in uh, new therapies. And you have to understand this enemy first. Uh, and it's so brand new that we can port some of our knowledge from other viruses and apply them, but this virus is different. So uh, new therapies are going to require a deeper understanding uh, of mechanisms uh, and rapid drug screens. So I think uh, uh, there are a number of trials with old, already existing medicines that are being tried for this, and that's great. Uh, it'll take uh, a while, several months for sure, to even find new targets and new drugs that then have to go through trials. So that's a little ways away, but it, it definitely will be compressed to, compared to normal development because there's uh, enthusiasm for doing that from not just the researchers, but the regulatory agencies and the government. So it's a different world we live in. So things will be faster, uh, but won't happen overnight. Do you think we'll be seeing treatment in the next eight weeks that, that, that they're willing to stand behind in some way? Uh, we'll have, I think, results from the remdesivir trial, and if early results are any suggestions, it'll be somewhat useful. So that'll be there. We'll know better whether hydroxychloroquine really works or not, more than the, the dangers with the cardiac negative cardiac effects, which are, appear significant. And so many trials of those have been stopped, actually, because more people were having uh, cardiac problems than were being improved. Um, uh, so. 
I think in the next eight weeks, we'll know better about the existing drugs and which ones help. And I should say that we haven't talked about one key aspect is that uh, part of the damage and the reason for the high fatality is that the virus is infecting our bodies and causing damage. But there's another big component, which is from our own immune system. Our own immune system overreacts. And, and, uh, and that actually is cause, appears to be causing a lot of trouble. A lot of the lung disease and probably the heart disease, 20% of people have heart disease also uh, now with this, is probably because of our immune system then overreacting and then attacking our own and in, the inflammation damaging our lung and hearts. Um, and so uh, we're trying uh, some of the existing uh, immune modulating drugs that have been used for say rheumatoid arthritis uh, and are using that for these patients. And that may be helpful also. And if, we, if some of those work, you'll still get sick, but you might not get the secondary component of the immune system uh, making us even worse. Um, and so we'll know all those answers in the next uh, probably month or two. All right, there's been so many questions. I think we've got 28 or 25 on our board. You're our most popular speaker. Um, are there, are there, why don't I just open it up to anybody who would like to ask a question? Okay. Does that make sense? Um, what I don't understand is all this about testing. You can get tested today and then tomorrow you get the disease. So what good is this testing going to be unless we test every day or almost every minute of the day? Well, it's a really good point. Um, and, uh, I think uh, it came up yesterday that even once the federal or state or federal restrictions are lifted, to get people had to have the confidence, even if they're allowed to, to go out to sit three feet away from somebody in a restaurant or be on an airplane. Uh, it, we may be in a situation where people need to demonstrate that within the last 48 hours, uh, they were negative. And so a test that is easy to do and cheap and can be done with frequency, like I think what you're getting at uh, is going to be key because you're right. So, so what if I tested three weeks ago negative? How does that help me today? Um, when I know I could be positive and, and asymptomatic. Uh, and so you can imagine uh, people needing to be tested frequently. So I think we have to be thinking that way as we are designing uh, the appropriate kind of test with that goal in mind. So it's a really good point. Is not having a fever uh, a significant uh, indicator? Like 98 points, you know, just not even 99, but 98.6, or uh, is that a reasonable indicator? That you might be healthy? Yes. You know, we thought so, uh, but uh, the more we're learning, probably not. Um, and so it, it looks like uh, if the data we're seeing right now are correct, even if you're, uh, if we tested uh, everybody, if, if 15% of the people are, are end up being positive, even without uh, having a fever, then it's not such a good indicator. That's what's so dangerous about this virus and so unusual. Uh, that is very, very atypical. What about the other side of it and the false positives and false negatives with the uh, serological testing, the immunity? Yeah, so, um, so we don't know what those are yet for the serology. Um, we do know that there's a pretty decent false negative rate for the virus testing. And so if we're doctors are telling people, we're telling people that if, uh, if you've had a constellation of symptoms that's consistent with this, 
even if a test is negative, you should consider yourself positive and you probably did have it. Uh, false positives, fortunately, are not are not a thing with this. If you're positive, you're positive. And that'll be true for serology as well. So DPAC is a vaccine, uh, even a silver bullet. I mean, the flu vaccines are only 50, 60, 70% effective. Mutations are possible. So how, how do we think about you know, the longer term? You know, is vaccine really you know, total answer? Yeah, Doug, that's a really good point uh, that we haven't talked about yet. And that is, you all know that when we have a flu vaccine, 50, some years, 70 percent, it's a, it's effective. But other times it's for other cases not. And the reason for that is that the flu virus mutates a lot. And so every year when the, the uh, vaccine manufacturers need to make a vaccine, they have to predict what's likely to be the most common form that's attacking people, you know, a year in advance. And they guess. And Sometimes they're more right than others. Uh, so the beauty, or the benefit in this case is that so far, at least, th this coronavirus does not appear to be mutating with much frequency. And so that's very different than the flu. So the good news with that is that if, if as we do make a vaccine for it, uh, it should be effective uh, broadly, much more so than the flu and won't change every year. So it, that's a huge point and it makes a, a vaccine a much more realistic solution. So there's no reason to think that it'll be super hard to make a vaccine for this. Uh, it's just a matter of time. So uh, I think that's a bit reassuring, reassuring that we will get over this. We will solve this with the vaccine, but we've got to do other things to not have it be you know, 2021 or 2022 late 2021 or early 22 before we get over this. You know, I've heard a lot of the great discussions about the economy on these calls. Uh, and this is a group of business leaders. And, you know, I think uh, we've really got to be thinking about what steps we can take to be able to open up our economy, even if we have to live with this for 18 months. What role will antibodies play? So for most uh, things like, say, chickenpox um, and measles, if you've had that once, you're protected for most of your life uh, if you have an antibody because those don't change a lot. So we thought that the if you have an antibody to this, that you should be protected. And that still may turn out to be the case. But just last week, there was a, there a few reports of people who uh, had the infection, tested positive for the virus developed antibodies, and then sometime later, again, were infected. So there, there are small numbers right now in a few reports, so it's unclear whether that'll be a rare event or a common event. If it turns out to be a common event, that's really, that's a much, much harder nut for us to crack because that means you can get it again and again and your antibodies really aren't protecting you. Maybe it'll limit the severity. So maybe you'll be more of a asymptomatic kind of patient. Uh, but all those are things that we have to study right now. But it was a very surprising and disappointing result. Deepak, uh, I think you're going to have to have a lot of data to be able to answer some of these questions. So where do you think we should centralize that data? Because especially if we get smartphone apps, we're going to get a lot of data. And there's a lot of precedent for that. Yeah. It's a great question. So one of the reasons we we in the 
regulatory agencies and the government is so excited about the test I mentioned earlier that we have developed with the smartphone camera um, is that uh, you can imagine if that's ubiquitous, that in real time, all that data is being aggregated. So we've been working with um, folks from AWS, Amazon Web Services, to think about uh, if we were able to roll that out, uh, it's gonna take a lot of uh, sophisticated machine learning algorithms to, to be able to integrate those data and learn from it. So it doesn't have to be them, but it needs to be somebody like them uh, who would partner uh, in order to be able to maximize uh, the gains from that, from that, those sorts of approaches. But it's a, it's a real key thing. We can learn a lot. You might've, uh, some of you might've heard about this uh, digital thermometer uh, from a company called Kinsa, where they had a million of these uh, in the United States uh, over the last few years sold. And uh, that just uh, because it's digital thermometer, it aggregated data. And uh, when it, it appears you could have predicted the areas of outbreak by fever information three to four weeks before the CDC was is able to through their surveillance uh, mechanisms. And so that kind of thing, if you had uh, uh, good geolocation data and things, you could imagine there are clever ways to use that for the public good. Hydroxychloroquine has been prescribed for malaria treatment for 50 years. Why, why only now are the uh, cardiac complications being focused on? So I, I'm a, actually a cardiologist. So the cardiac complications have always existed. Um, and it's something that uh, we worry about when people are taking that medicine. It is a good anti-prophylaxis and that, ri that risk is relatively low. Uh, but it exists and it, it alters the cardiac rhythm a bit that predisposes people to fatal arrhythmia. What's happening in the uh, COVID patients is that uh, the, about 20% of patients have heart involvement from the virus. So they are developing heart failure and rhythm problems at baseline without anything else. And so in those that are already now predisposed, you, you're giving them medicine and that, uh, uh, then increases the risk for those fatal arrhythmias. And that's probably why it's becoming more evident and obvious in the clinical trials that, are, that, uh, that have been stopped that uh, too high a percentage are actually having those complications. But in fact, everybody, uh, it's always been a, a known complication. But you always take balanced trade-offs. Did you say 20% of all COVID patients are de developing cardiac issues? They are ranging from heart failure, so the muscle gets weak and isn't pumping as well, to rhythm problems. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you hear most about the lung, but in fact, heart problems, the neurologic problems, you, you know, many people's presenting symptoms are they lose their smell because it affects their neurons. And a rare group gets uh, encephalopathy uh, also. Others have diarrhea because it affects the gut, and some even have had renal failure from kidney involvement. It's really a bad bug. So I have a question. Um, how long do you think it will be until we're able to quantify uh, people's uh, pre, like risk of developing bad uh, consequences with the virus? It seems like I read about uh, potential genetic predisposition. People talk about obesity. People talk about certain other, you know, what, whether it's diabetes or cardiac um, issues, so forth. It's just very hard, I think, for people to know what their own risk is. And, and, and for opening up, it seems like people need to be able to sort themselves. How, how long do you think it'll take before we get there? 
Yeah, it's a really good point. And you know, the early re reports were that uh, younger people were protected and is really just focused on older people. But in fact, in the United States, half of our hospitalizations are people between the age of 20 and 60. Um, and so, um, you know, it's a really good question. Uh, I think as we, like we were talking earlier, is as we are able to aggregate data uh, and use machine learning approaches to, un, you know, in an unbiased way, examine all the variables and see if anything sorts out uh, with being associated with that, maybe we'll learn for that, but it's going to take the right kind of uh, information. So it's going to be, you know, based on good information technology to be able to sort that out. It's un unrealistic that we, ideally, we'd have, we'd be in a world that's a few years away, but not that far, where everybody's genome was known. And then you could also uh, sort those data by genetics. Uh, but that's that's not the world we live in today. So we won't be able to, I think, quickly go from genetic predisposition uh, to that. Uh, but maybe there'll be other parameters ranging from age, health status, predisposing conditions, um, things of that sort. But we're a ways away from that. But it is a key question because if you could risk stratify, right, which is I think what you're getting at, then people could make more informed decisions about what risks they want to take and the public should take uh, with their involvement in the workplace and things. Nicole, anybody else? I know yeah, yeah, so we're, it appears like to me like we're months away from mass testing. We're months away from vaccine treatment. We're months away from a... Uh, a vaccine, a preventative vaccine. So what do you do in the interim? So I think all those are accurate observations, even in the best of circumstances, uh, by compressing timeframes, you're still looking at the fall for many of these things. And that's the best of circumstances. So your, your question is a good one. So what do we do? So I think what we need to do is um, we've, we've taken measures to flatten the curve right now to not overwhelm the hospital systems. So I think we're starting to do that. The consequence of that is we'll get to a point on the curve where the burden, the total burden of infections in the population get to a small enough number that, but it will, but won't go away. And we, that can't be the expectation, uh, but will be small enough that you can test, isolate and track in a way that you don't get the spike that we saw, you know, that with the silent spread. So we had this silent spread. It exploded exponentially as one anybody could predict. Uh, once you get to the other side of that, it's unrealistic to expect us to stay in this situation until it goes away because that won't happen. But we need to prevent the exponential rise. And the key to that is we go back to work in phases. I think the phased approach announced yesterday is very logical. I think that's extremely logical. Uh, and I, I like that approach. And during that phased opening, the goal should be to, to mitigate and prevent the exponential rise until we have a real solution. And so I think we'll need to be in those phased reopenings um, until there's a solution of a treatment or vaccine. Uh, but we don't have to be stuck where we are now until then. But we have to get further to lower the burden of infections in the population uh, to make it realistic to isolate and track. Right now, there's just too much. In most places, there's too much. Now, having said that, within a few weeks, many parts of the country will have reached that point where the burden is low enough that it's very reasonable 
for them to start opening up uh, as uh, described uh, and do the things that are needed to, to stay steady. But the key to that, which is why yesterday's conversation was, I think, accurate, the key to that is then testing so you don't have silent spread again, which is the whole reason we're in this situation. We had a month of silent spread. And if you just do the math, I'll just tell any of you to do this. Start with the, start with <coughs> a thousand. And uh, every day, if, you, if the doubling time of this virus in the population is, is three days, just march that out for 30 days and start with a thousand. And you'll get to a number at the end of that, that you'll realize why that silent spread uh, was so, so bad. So, so we got to knock it down so we can do contact management, basically. Yeah. So, but it, a state is a big place. Let's say you're in um, Dade County, Florida, and everybody's fine. But in Broward County, everybody isn't fine. So how do they, how are they going to control that? How are they going to know? I mean, they were talking about states and governors when it might be um, major urban centers have more of a problem than the, the suburban centers or the rural centers. That, that's definitely the case. The hot spots have been more in the urban areas where there's high concentration, although there have been hot spots elsewhere, as you probably heard about in South Dakota recently. Uh, but your point is a really good one is even if, if we do this rolling uh, type of approach, but people are still moving, uh, then you're going to get some spread. And that's why I say it's unrealistic to make it go away for exactly the reason you mentioned. But let's say that I'm in a region that uh, is, uh, has opened up, uh, but I, there's some burden here. I get infected. I travel to a, re a region that doesn't have a lot, um, and I seed, uh, seed a group there. That is going to happen. I don't think we can completely prevent that. What we have to prevent is the exponential growth once that does happen. And that's going to be through testing, isolating, and tracking. Yeah, I, I get that testing, isolating, and tracking will control the contagion. But in the best leverage point to reduce dramatically the risk of death through some of these treatments, uh, remdesivir, hydro, yeah. I can't even pronounce it. Hydroxychloroquine. And yeah. uh, maybe the antibody plasma treatment. I mean, if you take the fear of death off the table, it seems to me that that's you know and vaccines way off in the future yeah that's what is going to get most americans more comfortable with taking some risk still tracking still isolating still testing but isn't that the best leverage point we have get one of these treatments 100 percent. the key is to have treatments or and or vaccines ultimately absolutely uh, but as the que uh, question earlier raised, uh, that's going to take uh, several months from now. And so what do we do in between? So I think all these are mitigating measures, period. Uh, and they're mitigating measures to try to keep it from exploding. But you're right, they don't get to the heart of the matter. That's got to be a, a treatment. And that's going to take research uh, to find new drugs. Uh, and that, that's exactly where we are, we are focused uh, in, in largest part of a place like Gladstone, the Gladstone Institutes. Um, but until then, uh, we have to do something. And you're absolutely right that if even if you uh, can only make it a treatment that uh, makes it less likely you're going to die, yeah, you make it really sick and life's going to suck for a while and you'll be really sick, but you're not afraid of dying, uh, that's probably enough, you're right, to get people 
to be the mindset, well, you know, I'll get sick, but I'm not going to die. The reason for the country to shut down for over this, where we don't for other things, is that yeah. even though the fatality rate's not so high, enough people are getting infected that it's pretty high. And uh, it's still maybe tenfold higher than the flu. Um, and so a lot of people are dying. And that's the scary part. I mean, we've had 30,000 deaths really in a month. Yeah, more than Vietnam. Yeah, so that would argue that's where most of the resource should go towards the treatment, right? I, I agree completely. And being, you know, uh, uh, you, you know, you, you think about it, we were spending, we had $2 trillion for relief for the economy, and that's really important. Uh, but ideally, we'd be spending a lot more than we are on research to find new drugs, new and to to find a new drug, you have to understand the mechanisms of how the virus is working. So you have to mechanistically understand it. And uh, you know, at our place, we're we have a great stem cell center, so we're actually able to make human lung tissue and human heart tissue and brain tissue from stem cells. Uh, and we're doing all our drug discovery and mechanistic study on human cells with the virus. Um, and that that's the kind of stuff that has to be pushed aggressively. But I'll tell you, you know, places like ours, and we're not alone. We're very resource constrained because uh, the way the research world works, you apply for a grant for monies that take about a year normally to get. Uh, and so nobody has any resources to do this right now, but we and others have pivoted quickly and are scrounging up dollars uh, to do that. And the philanthropic community has been great. We've gotten a number of gifts uh, to do exactly that. But that's the kind of thing that, you know, philanthropy and the government and businesses for their own benefit, uh, I think, should be investing it in a way that's not currently happening. No. Do you, do, what's the question? Uh, but have you heard what we have heard on other calls that nationwide doctors and healthcare professionals are pre pre prescribing hydroxychloroquine for their families without advertising it, despite the uncertainty? Um, I think there probably are people who are doing that, um, with no doubt. Um, and many hospitals are, you know, had certainly a few weeks ago had just made it a standard protocol. If a patient came in, they were getting put on that and, and a Z-Pack, and we were basically throwing everything we had it at them. Um, I think that's changed in the last in the last two weeks as more reports came out of the uh, uh, cardiac complications with hydroxychloroquine, um, and so it's not become no longer standard. And and I think in the next probably three or four weeks, we'll have better clinical trial results that even it maybe it'll be turn out that even with the cardiac complication rate, enough people are being helped that it's still worth it to take that risk. Um, and you monitor it closely, but there's gotta be a clear benefit to be able to take that risk. And we just don't know yet. Yeah. Let me ask Todd Boley to take the last question and then we'll wrap it up. Todd? So on one of the calls we were talking about um, testing, leveraging pharmaceutical facilities and we have 67,000 pharmacies. Is there any framework for testing that you've been hearing about that makes a lot of sense to roll it out fast? And then secondly, one of the byproducts of this is going to be that there's going to be a lot of idle retail real estate and particularly with malls that probably are B plus malls that have lots of parking and power and energy. Should we be thinking about building health care reserves. I heard that Merkel and Germany were so ahead of it because they all had the equipment, they had everything ready to go, they were able to test, 
and therefore their mortality rate is at all-time you know, lows. What are your thoughts on scaled testing framework and then healthcare reserves? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. Uh, Germany is a good example of uh, being very disciplined about uh, uh, how they went about this that's resulted in a, a low spread and low mortality rate. Um, so I think that's a good model. The, um, in terms of getting out into this through the pharmacies, like you mentioned, um, I think that's a, actually a very good strategy. So if you take, for example, uh, the Abbott test that came up earlier that maybe is not ready to uh, be in a home kit, but maybe it could be placed uh, in a large number of places. Uh, pharmacies are like Walgreens, as I mentioned, CVS pharmacies. A lot of people go to those individual spots so they could be trained users there uh, that are, serve as the interface for, a, for various platforms of testing. Um, and that would push out the testing capability much more broadly. Uh, so I, I, I do think that's a great strategy because we have to be able to scale and make it easy and frequent that people uh, can get tested. Uh, but then you, you have to have an infrastructure that uh, then uh, allows the next steps to happen after you test. You can't just test. And so far we haven't really invested in, uh, in that next phase, which was, I, I do think that's what we should be preparing for right now. We should be preparing for the reopening of the economy. And part of that is to lay down the infrastructure that would allow the mitigation uh, events that we talked about until there's a treatment. And ultimate goal, we've got to drive towards creative solutions for treatment. We, we can do all these things to, to mitigate, but we've got to innovate our way out of this problem. And that's what America does best. Uh, so I'm very confident we'll do that. Uh, but the sooner we do it, the better. And so thinking strategically how we can accelerate is the key. Well, let me just say on behalf of all of us, Deepak, you, you have been exceptional. Um, you've covered topics across the spectrum in a very broad way. You've been detailed, and at the same time, you've been you've, you've been clear. And so I know on behalf of all of us, I wanted to say thank you for, for closing out the week in a, in a beautiful way. Dr. Srivastava just walked us through the testing, treatment, and prevention priorities required to combat COVID-19. He thinks we could see the quickest progress on the testing front, where we need much faster and more accurate results. He highlights a Gladstone research project that uses CRISPR technology and enables a smartphone camera to operate as a microscope, eliminating the need to send every test to a lab. This is exactly the kind of innovation we'll need to get through this. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to stop the virus, save lives, and get Americans back to work. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast. 